Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. Now, what we do here is casual conversations. And so sometimes an idea or a thought or something scrolled and I saw a headline and I read the first few paragraphs, something will come up as an inspiration from that moment that wasn't fully explored or hadn't fully been realized. And so in the spirit of casual conversation, I just kind of want to put that on the table as you listen and hopefully begin to become part of this circle of communication that we're, we're creating here. But practices, mindfulness and meditation are just part of our practice and we never show up already there. I've worked with so many different people who were saying, I cannot meditate. I just, <laughs> I can't sit still. There's no way I could ever do that. And the reminder is, is that it's a practice. Anything that we have ever done has taken us time to step into that role, see how we embrace it and you know maybe you had something where a prodigy and just walk in and you're just naturally good at something right that 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 is good i can't think of something that in my life <laughs> to back up that sentence but most things are a practice and the more we do them the better we become at them but showing up with a mindfulness of acceptance to recognize that we're at the very beginning of this journey so my question is to all of you is what beginning journey are you on right now? And can you relate to what we're talking about in mindfulness and meditation? Is there something new that you're starting? So many people in this post-pandemic time have pivoted businesses or, you know, maybe they work from home now or so many different things. Children had so many new experiences. So, you know, What's new in your life? And do you feel like you, you're excellent at it? Or is this that new practice of something you're concentrating on and learning step by step? And I'm gonna do what I do sometimes and that's sort of not play devil's advocate, but take the other side of that coin. Is there something you've been doing for a very long time that you've already created habitual patterns around? We've talked about patterns, out behavior and different either journeys and all of that. But, you know, even mindfulness can become mindless as a practice. You know, I do my practice every morning at 645. Not me. I'm just saying this as a hypothetical. I do mine when I wake up. <laughs> After at some point, whenever that is. 
But if you're someone who's like 6.45, I get up and I sit on my cushion. At 7.15, I do ba da If you have that kind of, I'm not going to call it rigid, I'm going to call it ritualized, habitual days, then there may be some days where it's just that thing on your calendar that you do at 6.45. You set up your cushion, in my case, the pillow on my bed. I open my shade and I sit. I set my timer and I sit. But if you're doing that from a place of, oh, this is what I do at this time, rather than this is what I get to do in this moment. This moment is not like yesterday's moment at 6.45. It's fresh. It is new. So in the same way that this may be something that is routinized and part of your daily experience, can I use routinized and routine in the same sentence without, you know, the grammar police coming? I don't know. But that how do we, with mindfulness, make every moment something fresh, something new to approach with consciousness. And when you were talking and telling us about it, coming to your cushion, it reminded me of wanting to take those practices off the cushion. Like how, what we practice gets stronger and what we, why are we practicing mindfulness? So we can go to camp and do it together. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, so we can go to camp. <laughs> Which is coming up beginning in July, Sunday afternoons, July 17th. Is it first Sunday? Taking it off the mat, taking it off the cushion and bringing it into our life. So there are times where my routine just doesn't fit in with my lifestyle and I can't get up and get on my cushion immediately. But Siva, on the other hand, insists on having her potty walk in the morning. <laughs> and sometimes my mindfulness turns into a moving mindfulness or a moving meditation as we get out and, you know, I'd have to put her leash on and get her potty bag and get my shoes and my sunglasses and my hat, do all of those things, and then step outside. And when my feet hit the earth, I pause for a minute to remind myself that this is a mindfulness walk for me as well. Maybe I didn't have the opportunity to stay in my routine that day. But maybe that's a routine too, right? This is a different routine then. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, you know, as we get into a mindfulness meditation specifically and the instruction, this will come back. But there's a moment in the instruction where we are told that once we recognize that our mind has wandered, then we label our thought thinking and come back to the breath. I'll get more into that in a little bit. The key there, though, is recognizing when your mind has wandered. So in that same sense, if you're walk, walking out the door with a dog, something that you do every day, and you notice that it's a mindfulness activity, there had to be a moment before that where you recognized that your mind had wandered and you, you had to come back to this moment and however you do that. So not every walking of the dog is going to be done mindfully. There may be you get out, you've been rushing, you've got somewhere to go, and you've got 15 minutes to get out the door, get Siva out so she can poop and pee, get back, get your keys, get your coffee, and get out the door, there may be a moment where you lose that mindfulness, but you're out there, you're walking, and then you get a whiff of apple pie bacon on someone's windowsill. I always have that cartoon image of the smoke kind of coming in and wafting to under the nose, and then Bugs Bunny kind of floating in the air over to the window. You have that moment where you smell something, or the wind comes in, and your hair just, you can feel it at every, every root. You know, whatever it is that wakes you up in that moment, that's why they say that these practices are about waking up, that in that moment, 
there's mindfulness. And if you can take it and realize that's what it is, then it was a mindful activity. There was a moment that even if the rest of the time is rush, 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 so often our mindfulness is experienced in moments and glimpses. I don't know. I've been practicing formal mindfulness meditation for 23 years, and I still often fucking forget to breathe or I forget to, in my real life off the cushion, there's real life on the cushion, real life off the cushion. Sometimes I forget that when I'm in a moment of clenching and of constriction, that all I have to do is label my thought thinking and come back to the breath to feel that openness and expansion again. I wanted to build on what you just said, because it really struck me at the beginning of your sentence where you said, it's recognizing when your mind wanders, recognizing when your thoughts wander away and then escorting your attention back to your breath. Escort. Escort. Yes. Another <laughs> escort. Yes. <laughs> you didn't say it was about clearing your mind or not thinking or, you know, a lot of times people will say, I can't meditate because my brain is too active. And I think this is a great time to talk about Meditation is not, I don't believe the goal is to not have thoughts. It's to recognize that the brain is offering you thoughts on a regular basis. And when it does, what kind of thoughts is it offering? What is it offering? And then not get stuck in that story, but to be able to recognize, hey, now I'm decided, now I'm making my grocery list for after meditation. Let me bring my mind back to my breath because I can make that list later. This is the amount of, this is the time I have set aside to train my brain, hopefully, if I'm lucky, to be able to focus on one thing. And that one thing is my breath in that moment. And that's, you know, we've talked about a bunch of things already. And we've also in previous podcast episodes talked about conflating mindfulness with meditation a mindfulness opportunity in every ordinary task that we have in the day. But that's not formal mindfulness meditation practice. And formal mindfulness meditation practice is only one meditation practice out of, I don't even know how many types, lineages, styles, or ways of meditating that there are. So one of our aims in talking about this and in offering a variety of meditations, which we will do at camp in person. <laughs> so a little station identification time, you're watching Anecdotal Anatomy TV time. So come for those. But that there are so many different ways of meditating, so many cultural influences on the, the practices of meditation. And often, often, and I'll say this as a personal experience, the ones that I learned first feel right. And so I have created biases and I'm not going to tell you which ones because we're going to play a little bit in this, in this episode about where maybe your natural biases occur, you know, and they're not bad, they're not wrong, but like meditation and like thoughts, it's important that we can begin to understand the nature of our thinking rather than trying to eradicate thought completely. What would we be? We're all walking around spaced out and mindless, but it does feel less than intelligent. To, to then sort of decide that one is right, one is wrong, or to be always so mindful that you walk into a, a tree. You know, there, that's possible too. That is when our mindfulness becomes almost like a mindlessness. 
And it's just so always, I'm so mindful. I'm walking with a very, you know, concerted, you know, uh, pace. And then I walk right into a, a lamppost or something. So to find balance is something we're always talking about and that we find is important but also to recognize our innate biases. Because when we can do that with something as simple as our breath and our thoughts, think about the possibility of identifying our own biases, which we all have, so that we can work with them to release them for a more peaceful and loving world. So it's when we talk about these things, like how meditation can save the world, you know, if we start with ourselves, we start with our own thoughts, our own biases. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with myself and others, because there's a defense mechanism we all have. We don't want to be biased. And I'm going to use that as the word because there are other words that can fit in that have more heat. You know, you had just talked that mindfulness and meditation are not the same thing. They can complement each other. We can meld them, but, but we can also look at them as individual practices that kind of stand alone. And I'm going to use when I began having a relationship with my food. And I really like to frame it that way for my own thoughts was that I had a relationship with my food. And it began years ago when I read, it wasn't Eat, Pray, Love. It was the other book, but I can't remember what it was. But a family decided to eat local and, uh, and seasonal for one year and they wrote the book. Hopefully I'll find it and we can put it in the show notes, but if I don't. And if you know it, you write it, you write it and it. tell me what it is. <laughs> but that's what they decided to do. And I really found the book to be so inspirational for me to really pay attention to where my food came from. And I've always been a gardener. So I like having my hands in the dirt, dirt under my fingernails. And I got used to the worms and started to thank them for being there. At first they were a little skeevy, but then I was like, oh, thank you for coming in and making sure that you take care of my garden when I'm not around. But anyway, my relationship with food meant that after I read that book, I lived close to Snipes Farm. Which, which is where a camp is going to be. be. <laughs> <laughs> that was just not even practiced. <laughs> Talk about a mindful connection. Yes. And I decided I would get join their CSA. I highly recommend it. Their food is amazing and organic and local. And so it became a mindfulness practice for me. On Thursdays, I would go pick up my food and it is a camp. And although it's great, I mean, it is a, <laughs> it is a farm. And although they do a great job of like presenting beautiful food, I like to wash all my food before I eat it. So it became my afternoon ritual and mindfulness practice to pick up my food, bring it home, clean all of it, and put it out on the counter to dry. And it was so beautiful, so many colors and so much abundance filling my counter. I just, it brought me so much happiness and so much joy to see it there. And then put it all away specific in specific ways in my refrigerator that it was just, I knew what was in each container. There was a container for lettuce and blah, blah, blah. I knew exactly where yada, each yada, piece yada. is going to be in my food in there. But then the taking it out, like to make a salad was so rewarding and oh my God, so tasteful that the whole practice became a mindfulness practice for me. Where's my food come from? And how can I put it together into something delicious seasonally? And 
And then to take a moment before I ate it to thank all the farmers at Snipes who, you know, cultivated those fields and land where all the crops would be planted, went out and harvested. They did, they cleaned it. How well they're working on permaculture to make sure that every drop of water is used appropriately. So anyway, my mindfulness practice has everything to do with my stomach. <laughs> and my joy of eating. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you that when we're mindful, we can make even the most mundane moment a bit more magical. <clears throat> you know, because we are, there's a gratitude that goes with it. All of those things that we're told to journal about, you know, come in in those moments of mindfulness. I think one of the myths of mindfulness <clears throat> is that it's, it's pure stillness. I mean, everything is relative in relationship to something. There is movement and stillness simply by the act of breathing. But there's action in mindfulness as well. And that started me thinking about this idea that we are co-creators in our lives. You know, with our, we are, we have to take responsibility and take action for the things we want or don't want to have happen in our lives. And then we sort of put it out there and mindfully, hopefully, hopefully mindfully, include other beings in that intention. But then Whatever source that you feel is bigger than yourself, whether it's, you know, God or Buddha or Jesus or, you know, the tree out front, if you're a pagan or however it is that you experience Mother Nature, I always feel is much bigger than I am. Then that becomes our, our co-creator that can't be seen or that can be seen, that can be felt, that can be experienced. But it's not an accident that you get what you want or don't get what you want, but it can also happen naturally and organically. But organic and mindful, to me, kind of, I'm conflating the two for the purpose of this particular conversation, that things can happen naturally, but you got to help it out a little bit. You've got to be the fire under the butt. I, I found that everything that I've ever gotten in life, and most everybody has, had an action that started it. I may have said, I want to change my job. I want to change my job. And that's a thought that maybe many people have. I want to change my job. But if I just kept saying that over and over again, it can be a, a statement, but nothing is ever going to change. But the next thing that happened was, I wonder what jobs are out there. That's the first action. Oh, maybe I can look it up and find out, uh, you know, who's hiring and what they're looking or what are my other career choices? And what have I done in the past that I can change? When I went from working in the dental office to becoming a massage therapist, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I knew it was time for me to move on and do something else. But I took an action step and I mindfully said, this is something that I want to do. And I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but I know that nothing is going to change if I cannot have a mindful focus of wanting to make that change. And then I looked and said, what's available? And I had no idea what I wanted to do at all. If you had only stayed in your mind, though, and I'm not conflating staying in your mind with being mindful, but if the only thing you had done was say to yourself, I really want to change my job, but then never wondered beyond that or took an action beyond that, that's kind of what I'm saying is that we can get stuck. We can kind of like those adhesions against the Pasha. Oh, did I just bring our neighborhood back in a little Pasha action? But I think that there are some myths about mindfulness and mindfulness can become as much an anesthetic as it can be an action, you know, in inspirer. 
You know, it can be the thing that, oh, I'm meditating, it'll come. I'm visualizing, it'll happen. I have my stuff, you know, I've got my my journaling and my vision board and I've got all these things that I do. Those are actions. And, you know, we need to continue to build on those actions to really co-create the experience we want in this world, I think. Yeah, we can have the energy of change that we start to embrace, but... The energy is the motivator, not the thing that cre- necessarily creates the change. It's the motivator to take that next step. You have also said, and recently, that what it, it is the motivator, but it is also the change. Because when we change our mind, we also change our actions. We change what we do. You had said that earlier today, not on a previous podcast. You know, Teresa and I have lots of casual conversations <laughs> off the mic. And I thought that was really interesting because... I was saying to her about in one of my relationships, I changed the way I reacted to something. And as a result, the action I felt coming toward me felt different too. So rather than responding in habitual defensiveness, I decided to see this person as my teacher for patience and compassion. And all of a sudden, that was a mindful moment because let me tell you, I've gone through a lot of times in this relationship where it was, you know, butting head against the wall, but it was me butting my brain against my own skull. It was not, had nothing to do with the other person. And until I realized that that person is in my life to teach me these things, nothing had changed. I thought I was so smart. I thought I was doing all this work and I was doing all this work. But I I took that extra bit of mindfulness and a long trajectory, a long road of this work to actually find the the change that I was helping, to, that I wanted to create, that I was co-creating. Yeah, you know, they you hear that statement and sometimes sometimes it sounds cliche. Be the change you want to see, right? You see it on posters <laughs> and it, yeah, it's all over the place. Be the change you want to be. But when you actually make a change and show up different, it's like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> it seems like it was just a cliche statement that just Felt overwhelming or unreachable, but in just showing up a tiny bit different, the whole, a whole situation started to transform itself. Relationships transform because we show up a tiny bit different. And then what comes back to us is different. So now we can make more advanced movements because there's good action. There's good interaction that's happening as a result of turning the lens. And that's what I did. And that's what you just said. Turning the lens back to how do I show up in this situation? That was so hard. It's so hard to identify. Started this whole conversation with flaws and wanting to be edited. And so here it's like it's hard to look at yourself and see where change has to happen. So for many years, you know, I, I would think my brand is love. You know, I have been a hippie my whole life. I've been, you know, just someone who wants to love, be love. I, I, I want to remind people that they are love. And so it has surprised me in my life when I show up thinking I'm showing up as love, when I'm really showing up as judgment and other things. And I'm not getting the response that I think is appropriate when you show up as love. You know, you show up as love. Love should be the thing that's on the other side. But there was so much more at play that I hadn't looked at, that I hadn't seen. And it's not about berating and saying, oh, I'm so bad and self-flagellating and, you know, that kind, that's a practice too, one that I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, a little more compassion there. But one of the things that mindfulness meditation has done for me 
has been allowed me to be clearer about who I am in the world, you know, not who I think I am. You know, part of this is don't believe everything you think. If we're going cliche world, don't believe everything you think. And, you know, sometimes I can get up on my high horse and one of my demons is self-righteousness. And I, I, you know, one of my demons was self-righteousness. I think I've grown a lot out of that, that demon, but I haven't said that out loud until this moment. But I think for a long time, you know, there was a feeling that, you know, my opinion should be your opinion. Uh, but I, I don't feel that anymore as much as it may sound sometimes that, you know, I speak with authority. So sometimes it may feel that way, but I really don't feel that way anymore and have learned a shit ton through one of the many fruits of mindfulness meditation, which is clarity and strength of mind. Clarity and strength of mind. You know, we're talking right now about how we show up for other people right? Mindfulness meditation and how we approach our relationships and how we show up to other people and in relation with other people. But I also want to look at what do I show, how do I show up in my own head? Like, what are my demons? And sometimes that's what happens in meditation is I'm sitting there and I find out that my self-talk is awful. Like, oh, Teresa, you're, oh, why did you do that? You're so dumb. Or, my goodness, Teresa, how many times are you going to make the same mistake? And we realize that, or I realize that in order for me to not be judgmental to others, in order for me not to be uh, evaluating how they show up and what they do, my mindfulness practice, my meditation practice starts with a himsa turn towards myself. Am I treating myself with the self with respect and love and care and compassion and patience right to be able to learn i get very frustrated when i'm learning something new and trust me learning to do this podcast there was a lot of learning that happened we we could make a list of all of the things that we learned and sometimes i just like okay this is what i have to do and I'm going to take the time and I'm going to figure it out and I can have patience. But frustration for me often turns into this high level of anxiety where I'm like, I just can't get this done. I'm not going to learn this thing. And, and I feel bad sometimes for people who are there to help me because my frustration will look like impatience or it is impatience. It'll look like, oh, I can't get it done and blah, blah, blah. And my impatience pukes out the <laughs> over somebody who is trying to really help me through that or myself trying to figure it out. It becomes this big roadblock. But you have the practices. You're able to, if you realize your mind has wandered, you can label that thought thinking, bring it back to your breath. So you realize you're giving yourself this self-talk. You're not doing the mindfulness meditation practice, but you realize you have veered from what feels right, feels in alignment for where you are. So you stop in your real world, off the cushion, self, you know, talk mode. And or when someone is instructing you and you're feeling impatient, you can have that moment where you realize you're, you're showing impatience, you're performing impatience because it feels that way. And you're kind of working from that energy. But then you have the practice and the skillful means to then say, but not now. I can come back to my breath and I can be present for what this person is instructing me or for what I'm telling myself. 
and I can change the word. I can say, I'm not being impatient, I'm being excited, or I've got whatever the other word would be. And that is not to be confused with toxic positivity, where you walk around all the time saying, everything is great. I love this, love this, love this, love this, love this, love this, love. But then your practices and your actions are not in line with that. You know, we can be, you know, fake it till you make it, serenity now all day long until the cows come home. But that's not going to be an agent for change. And it's not going to do anything for our own self-agency. So these practices that we offer and that we talk about endlessly <laughs> are tools. And they are yours to learn so that you can choose which one, you know, take which one you would use in that moment. And that requires awareness and reading the room and all of the things that we'll talk about and playing that with that can happen. And that can happen. You know where we're going with this. And, and when I take that mindful moment to say, bring my attention back to my breath, this is something I think is really important. I also can just say, I need a moment to feel what it feels like to be frustrated. I need a moment to experience this and know what this feels like so that I don't let it transform into something that looks like anger or so that I can just honor myself and say, hey, it's okay to be frustrated. Like there's something about saying, I'm really patient. Patience is good. Impatience, impatience is bad. No. Impatience is another emotion that we get, that we all have. And taking that moment, taking that mindful breath to say, I just need a couple of breaths here. Because if somebody told me this morning that all of these things move in 90 seconds, now I don't know if that's all right. Things. All of these like kind of emotions that show up, if you stop and embrace them and actually feel them in about 90 seconds, they'll begin to soften a little bit. Isn't that interesting? Because you taught me that it takes 90 seconds to soften the fascia. It does. Yes. Yes. And so for, for any, any long-term change, we have to live through those 90 seconds. We have to be able to sit with that. And that is fucking hard. It's hard to do, especially when it's a part of us that we don't either accept, like a surrender to what we should accept. Uh, because I think the main, not the main thing, because it's important that we don't turn it in on ourselves, but ahimsa is the word you used, which is do no harm. And, you know, when we succumb or surrender, not accept, when we surrender to the impatience or the anger, not feel it, but allow it to take us over, which is something that mindfulness meditation allows us to draw back and not let it take us over like a storyline, then we don't do harm to others and we don't do harm to ourselves. So we can live in alignment with our ethical practices as well. So all of it is connected. It's just one big web. If, and so I, yesterday was the 4th of July and people were talking about we should change it to Interdependence Day. I love that because it's more the truth. We are independent, but we are all also interdependent. And until we realize that, we will never have true freedom. Ah, that goes back to us talking about how Fascia connects everything and creates space for individuality, oh, yes, right? Yes. Our model for uh, this body being a model for creating beautiful community spaces and understanding how our body works and how interdependent the body, mind, and spirit is as a beautiful model and metaphor. And when we create the space, the mindful space, to allow ourselves to feel, right, to sit back and say, I know that I'm angry, but that doesn't make it bad. 
It just means that I need to take some time to sit with it. And maybe that's when I say, I'm going to go to my cushion right now because I just, I want to sit with this and give it a chance to observe, to feel, and to feel, not think. You right. say when you find yourself thinking, come back to your breath. That's the instruction, but it's right. Feeling is a thought in this instruction. Pain in the body is a thought in this instruction. It's all in the in the world of thinking. But yes, it's not an actual thought. The feeling is the thing that takes you away, and that's the thing that we label and bring back. So it's just so there's no confusion, I'm not saying a feeling is a thought, but anything that distracts you from the moment is considered thinking. Is considered thinking. Yeah. yeah. But even this morning I was in a meeting and, you know, we were talking about it. I said, you know, we're we're so conditioned to label emotions as good emotions or bad emotions. And really, it doesn't matter which one it is. They both need space for us to feel them and experience them. But as a body worker, when we create patterns of pushing them away and not allowing us to experience them, then we often store them in our body. And sometimes they show up as pain. I had a client once who, and you would call it a knot. I would not necessarily call things knots, but not call it a I knot. would not call it a knot. I might call it an adhesion or some other word, but most people call it a knot. And when I would touch something that was sensitive, she'd say, oh, that's my ex-husband or, oh, that's my boss or, oh, that's my 13-year-old daughter. She had a name for every place in her body of discomfort. And as a body worker, that came into my mind as these are things that are unprocessed feelings. And when we, you know, push them away and label them as bad and we can't really deal with them, then sometimes they show up in our body as pain and discomfort. You had talked about stress when we were talking about fascia and how in our culture we think of stress as a bad thing. Anything in abundance like like that does have a negative effect on the body, the mind, all of the koshas. But we need stress also to grow. So again, we come back to finding balance. And the thing about feeling, all the feelings, I am grateful for every fucking feeling that is out there. You know, whether it's sadness or grief or anger or pure elation, ecstasy, joy, all of the feelings that we can have. Because each one, if we're mindful, like the relationship that I had where I changed my response, has the opportunity to be a teacher. What does it teach us? What do? Because if we don't, like you said, it felt unprocessed to you. If we don't give the emotions the opportunity to teach, tell us what they want to tell us. Why am I angry? What's at the root of that anger? Is it anger or is it fear? Is it love or is it fear? You know, what are the things that I need to get to the root of? And if I don't have that mindful moment to do that, then I won't call it a wasted feeling because feeling it is, you know, like you've said in the past, done is good. Like feel the feeling and move on. But if you're at the point in your practices where mindfulness is part of your daily experience, then be really super fucking curious when you get pissed off. My mother always hated that term, pissed off, pissed <laughs> off. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? Any particular emotion whether you love the emotion, it feels really good in your body, or it feels irritating or, or bad or whatever you might feel. Let Feel it deeply and, and learn from it. And then let it go. Don't store it inside. Feel it. So we let it blow it away on the, you know, the breeze. We experience it. And then we can let it go. We don't have to hold it 
so close inside because that holding it inside, not only does it makes us constipated. It does. And it has damage to our body, but it has damage to relationships. If we're holding on to these unexpressed emotions. And if we're looking at the body as a metaphor, as a model for how to, to consume and uh, among many other things the body does, then let's just look at our digestive system. You know, we take food in, we take nourishment in, but it's not nourishment the moment you put it in your mouth. Sometimes it just tastes good and it feels good. That could be one of those happy, light surface feelings that just tastes good. But it's, you know, sugar or high fructose corn syrup or whatever the fuck it is. But we take in the food and it goes through a whole system. And I'm not going to pretend I know exactly how that works. Teresa, if you want to jump in, that's your, your purview. Great. But it has to go through a whole system. It's got to be broken down. It's got to go through the acids. It's got to go through the channels. Sometimes they get stuck and sometimes we do get constipated. But if we've done the work and we've eaten the good nourishing food, it should flow through us so that what comes out the other end, as we shit it all out, that's waste. That's stuff we no longer need. Different from like get rid of what no longer serves you in this moment, which may be harder to identify immediately unless it's clear. You know, these are things that are clearly no longer serving you. We have one path well, takes care. It's like a tunnel, right? There's an in and there's an out. That's and in between the two, it's like driving through a tunnel. Sometimes you get into the tunnel and it's clear sailing, right? And it's at a time where you just peek. it comes in, it does all of its fabulous stuff, and it gets you to the next side. And sometimes it's rush hour at the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look, I went from this place to that place. Look at this beautiful place I ended up in. And other times you just sit there listening to people beep on their horn and smelling smoke fumes. Who knows? Uh, Exhaust fumes, not smoke fumes. You don't want smoke. No. Exhaust fumes. I got to tell you one story just about my dear mother who was just such a badass. She was a psychiatric social worker, clinical social worker. I forget which one. But she was a social worker for many years. She was an activist and an advocate. She was just the most amazing human. And she was, this blows my mind. I would never do this in a million years, but she could get away with anything. She was in the, the Lincoln Tunnel going into New York or coming out of New York. I forget which one. And it was packed. But there was someone behind her. This was early on of like cell phones and cars and people were just no Bluetooth. And the person was on the phone behind her. And my mom got nervous. She didn't like the fact that the person was on the phone in the tunnel behind her. And they were in traffic. You're not supposed to get change lanes in the tunnel. My mother got out of the car. She goes over to the person and says, excuse me, I would appreciate it if you didn't talk on the phone while you were driving behind me. That's the kind of mindfulness and courage combo that I aspire to in my life. Now, it could have gone many different ways, but like I said, my mom could get away with anything. And she was direct. She was kind. She was clear. She knew what she was saying in the moment. There was no, it wasn't, the judgment was her fear speaking, but she didn't say it like you are bad. She just said, I would appreciate it. Social workers. Okay. So that was my Lincoln Tunnel not being able to get out story, which did relate somehow to digestion. One in, one out. One in, one and out. And sometimes it goes through smoothly. And sometimes you got to talk to the person in the back to get that, <laughs> to make sure there's no blockage that's going to happen. Oh, that's so fun. So uh, do you want to do our mindfulness practices now? And, and like, just we teased it out a little bit in the beginning. We're going to be doing this and so much more fun shit at camp. I'm telling you. It is going to be so much fun. I'm so excited. Okay. So if you get a, a newsletter, an invitation to camp, go register. 
after, please. And if you didn't, if you're not on our mailing list, why not? Go into the show notes and and sign up. We'll put a link there. Oh, please do. Let me tell you one thing. Remember a minute ago, I said how much we had to learn? Proof. I'm telling you, we had a lot to learn to get this registration to be smooth. So I'm going to ask you, please, if there's any glitch, kindly send me a note like at anecdotal anatomy, wait, at gmail.com. Because if I missed something, it's just because there was a lot of steps getting it set up. So if you're going through and maybe there's a step that doesn't work out so well, please let me know so I can fix it for whoever is registering after you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a good point. Thank you, Teresa, for all your hard work. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I'm just going to take a breath here. Okay. We're going to do one complete mindfulness practice, mindfulness meditation practice. I'm going to start, and then Teresa's going to take over. Because it's a podcast, we're not going to have a whole lot of silence. But if you do this practice after it's been removed from the the actual episode, you can hit pause and set for longer. Maybe set your phone to a time that uh, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, however long you want it. Okay, so taking the breath. going to ask you to take your seat. Now, this is part of the practice. Taking your seat is the first part of the practice. Well, the first one after deciding to do it. So if you're sitting in a chair, sit far enough forward in a hard chair. It can have arms or not, but let your hands face down on your legs. Sit far enough on the edge of the chair that both of your feet can be flat on the floor and your knees are in about a 90 degree angle. Resist the urge to lean back if the chair has a back and see if you can lengthen from tailbone to crown. And as you do that, you may feel your abdomen engage a little bit. So just just enough to sit upright, not so much that you're trying to squeeze into something you shouldn't be squeezing into, but just enough to activate and sit up. And you may find that your spine lengthens. There's some space between the vertebrae. And see if you can notice the front side and the back side of your backbone all the little bones that make up your spine. We take our seat. Let the tailbone get really heavy as if it's weighted. And the weight is with gravity drawing you down toward the center of the earth. You're not going to break through your chair or your cushion. So if you're sitting on a cushion, you're not going to be with your feet on the ground. You're going to be in a cross leg or some other comfortable seat. But the instruction for elongating your spine is the same. Everything else is the same. I'm going to ask you to keep your palms face down on this one so that you can feel the grounding aspect of this practice. So you've taken your seat. Your spine is long. Your palms are face down on your legs. And for this part of the meditation, your eyes are open. There's a soft gaze cast down four to six feet in front of you. And if you don't have four to six feet, just let your your gaze drop and let your gaze be soft. So we're not laser focusing on an object. Your object in this meditation is your breath. So you've taken your seat. Palms face down to ground. Your eyes cast down is also grounding. Crown of the head feels as if it's being lifted slightly, a slight tug, and that activation in your belly may be in relationship with that pull as you lift up. 
Notice if you've begun to clench your jaw or you've clenched your butt or you've clenched any other part of yourself and relax. So rather than taking the shoulders back and down, just notice if they're hunched up and let them drop. Oh, I had some space to drop. All of that was taking your seat and all of that was your first instruction. The second instruction is to place your attention on your breath. And I use the word attention. Sometimes I switch and I'll say awareness, but awareness is more of the all-encompassing, including the peripheral awareness. And right now I'm asking you to say soft, but also focused, and that's attention. So place your attention, your focus on your breath. I can ask you not to change your breath, but chances are, as soon as you place your attention on it, it may have changed, but no deliberate changes, no active changes of deep belly breathing or deep breaths in or out. Just breathe. Take a few moments to notice your breath as it is. So this is one of the first places maybe choose not to judge your breath. Choose just to notice, is it deep? Oh, I'm not going to give you any more. No more instruction. I was going to give you possibilities, but I don't want to interrupt your flow of your experience. What does it feel like to breathe in your body, sitting up with some effort, with a downcast gaze? And the third and final instruction is sort of you know, we've hit the final instruction. You already know it. Once you have realized that your mind has wandered from your breath, label your thought thinking and return to your breath. So there's a lot to unpack here, and I'm only going to do a little bit. I don't want to overindulge the instruction. But first, we have to notice that our mind has wandered. We've already de determined that. Because you won't know to come back to your breath if you don't know that you've left your breath. Without judgment, label your thought thinking and return to your breath. So Pema Chodron has written about this part of the instruction. And she has said that this is an opportunity to cultivate friendship with yourself. I'm paraphrasing her. So rather than saying, damn it, mind wandered again. Whatever your inner dialogue is, it is simply... Label your thought thinking and return to your breath. No judgment. My teacher, David Nickturn, would say that all thoughts are democratic. There's not one that's better or worse. They're all the same in the pantheon of this practice. Label your thought thinking. So what's a thought? A thought could be following a storyline, which is an obvious thought, something that is a word moving through your head and you just can't let it go or, you know, your packing list, your shopping list, what you're doing later. Oh, that argument you had with your someone earlier in the day, whatever that is, is a thought. A thought is also a pain in your, your hip that is distracting you from your breath because pain in the body also has a story. We know this. Our body holds and tells our stories. So story is narrative. Narrative comes from thought. So every pain in the body comes from a thought. So I want to give you this opportunity also that 
if your body is screaming in whatever seat you have already taken, you have the opportunity, you have the choice to change your seat, but do it mindfully. We've done a lot of talk about mindfulness. How do you mindfully shift a cross-legged position, two legs extended, or one leg extended, or you're sitting in a chair, you might have to shift back in the chair. Shift your body in a way so your body is not screaming and return to your breath. So anything that removes your awareness, not your awareness, your attention, another A, from your breath is considered thinking and return to your breath. The point of this is not to not say thinking throughout this practice. It's to say thinking every time you notice your mind has wandered. That is the practice. It's not to get down to one to three times per sit that I say thinking. It's to say it every time. It's not to eradicate your thoughts. It's to become curious about your thinking and then letting it go and coming back to your breath. And in what we're doing here, I'm going to add on. That is the instruction. Take your seat, place your attention on your breath. When your mind wanders, label your thought thinking, return to your breath. But I want to add something here for our purposes. Notice it. Notice that every time you take your seat, every time you put your attention on your breath, every time you label your thought thinking and bring it back, notice how you feel in your body. Where do you feel it in your body? Does the blue sky of your mind is filled with clouds that are your thoughts that are, you know, sort of vying to get out? Is your head going to explode? I, here I am giving you thoughts. How do you feel? I'll take another few breaths in this part before I toss this over to Teresa. We've been practicing with our eyes open. So take this moment to now allow the eyes to close. And as they close, what are the first thoughts that come to mind? How does this change your experience? Do you have a preference to an open or closed eye meditation. We've been practicing with our hands down for grounding. So take this moment to turn palms to the sky in a more receptive or open to receive. What are your sensations? Notice the palm of your hand. there any sensations there? Is there an awareness? With these changes, has the breath changed in any way? Coming aware of its depth. texture, 
peace what's your relationship with it it's its flow it's ebb and it's flow as the breath flows in and the breath flows out feel in your body what do you notice what parts of the body open with the in-breath and how does that change with the out-breath are there any places in the body that you're holding tension so with the body scan Notice what your face feels like. And the shoulders. Can you have a sensation and not put a word on it? It's a hard thing to do, to feel without words. And if you start to give a story for a body part that I mentioned, label it thinking, come back to the sensations of the breath. Is there any tension in the arms? Be aware of the front of the spine. the back of the spine. We mindfully took a seat. And now that you've been holding that seat for some time, what are you aware of? What do you notice about your seat? Hips. Can you find awareness in the knees, the ankles, the feet, and the toes? Can you be in your body and embody this time, feeling the sensation, staying out of the thought? And when you come out of your body and into your mind, into your thoughts, label it thinking, come back to your breath. Is there an awareness of a repetitive thought, something that is persistent in its distraction? And if there is, what's the thought that you say? What are the words that you use? Label it thinking. Notice your breath. Feel the expansion. All the places of the body that move. With an in. 
How does that change with an X? And then take your hands and turn them over once again, placing the palms there. What are the first thoughts that come to your mind? And then the next instruction. See if there can be no thought. Just an action. Gently open the eyes and keep the downward gaze. When you're ready, take a moment where you can think and offer yourself a bit of gratitude and awareness of what that thought might be. And welcome back. Oh, my. I feel, I feel different. I feel ready and centered and aligned and that was really beautiful i also had a couple of thoughts that were going through my head and one of them was two musician friends of mine that i feel like i need to connect Ooh, very strange thanks all michael and keith michael and keith yep i'm not saying last names because i don't know if you'd want me to keith you probably know because he does our music and michael was someone that i met in my tibet house training who i think is a brilliant musician and for some reason feel like they should do something together or know each other. Who am I to tell them they should do something? What I learned, though, from this little exercise, from, from guiding it together, is how difficult it is as a teacher not to lead the student, not to say, these are your choices of what you can feel or what you should know in your body. This is one of the things we wanted to do was to not give you the binary choice. Do you feel your breath is deep or is it shallow? Are you thinking? Are you not thinking? Like, all of these things that we tend to offer as possibilities when there's a whole other world of possibilities that if we're only given those, we sometimes don't think about the others. And the impulse to give you the answer, which is not an answer at all, it's just a possible, you know, a, something on the multiple choice list that you could, could be, is really hard. And that is a practice that I think is worthy as a teacher. And I know we have a lot of teachers who listen, is to be mindful about how we share what we know or what we want to teach. And I know it's work I still have a lot to do on. Yeah, I do as well. It's hard to know, especially when we can't see anyone while we're talking, if how things are landing. And even in a class, in a public class where we're working or working one-on-one -on -one with somebody, creating that safe space to allow people to have their own experience without feeding it to them, is definitely a practice because we teach from experience and sometimes what we're offering is my experience. What I find, my, find myself offering my experience instead of the plethora of experiences that you could have. So we would be really interested in hearing your experiences. We love hearing your stories. We love connecting on a deeper level. So, you know, as you take these practices, and embody them and use them. Please let us know what's landing and, and how it is feeling in your body, mind, and spirit and in all of your koshas. And I will say this too, because this is one of the reasons we did this tag team meditation. 
and not wanting to give all the choices was this idea of bias and where it comes from. I know I brought it up before. I first learned my first formal meditation training was uh, eyes open, cast down, which is why I taught that. It's what I practice. It's what I know. It's what I've been trained in. It's it just it's my jam. But it's also my obstacle because when I've been in other trainings and other workshops and other meditation experiences and I'm asked to close my eyes, the first time that happened, my first thought, not my best thought, my first thought was, this is wrong. This is wrong. You're supposed to meditate with your eyes open. That was my instruction. And it felt, it was so clearly passed to me as an instruction that it felt like it had to be the right way. When I close my eyes, I am much more chatty than when my eyes are open. And I know that's not everyone's experience. We've had this chat too. But did that come from my, my internal bias? Did that come from practicing so much with my eyes open that I close my eyes? I, but even before learning formal meditation, there was always this, this bias that close your eyes so that you can go deeper. Close your eyes so that you can visualize X, Y, Z. And as someone who doesn't visualize well, I thought, oh, this has to be wrong. And so other thoughts start coming in. I get bored. I'm not seeing the guided meditation or whatever it is. But what I wasn't taught or, sh or wasn't shared that this was also a possibility, I mean, I may be making this shit up. I don't know. But in order for me to feel aligned with the certain types of meditation, I have to tap different senses. So even though no teacher ever taught me, close your eyes. And if you can't visualize, if you don't see what I'm, the babbling brook and the big mountain and the beautiful trees, then maybe you have a memory of a mountain or a babbling brook or a you know, copse of trees. If you can't, the memory part doesn't work. What do you think about it? Like it's, it's counterintuitive because there's a thought process, but you're not getting stuck there. You're moving with the meditation, but oh, I know these are the things I know about trees. These are the things I know about a babbling brook. That may be where your meditation is taking you. Or maybe the simple hint of a mountain or a babbling brook lands in your body. And you feel it. You feel all of a sudden you hear water babbling brook and your shoulders just drop or your, your jaw unhinges or something happens where you have an experience in your body. So I want to offer that for all of those out there who get frustrated with visualizing that closing your eyes is not always the way to go deeper. And it can be. Closing your eyes is not always the way to see things. And it can be. Eyes open is not always, you know, you, you get what I'm going. So this was sort of the, the bias that we were hoping you would experience what you were experiencing without having been spoon fed what it could or may not be. Yeah. And I think it was perfect because we have different experiences. I was taught to meditate with my eyes closed and it wasn't until I was meditating with Sherry where she started giving the instruction to leave your eyes open in a downward gaze. and. At first, I really didn't like it at all. But now I use both in different times and at different places and in different ways. But it was really a hard transition for me to make. Like, what do you mean? Leave my eyes open. I want my eyes closed so that I can be in my own space. And now I can go back and forth at different times and have a preference. Today I feel, or sometimes it happens in the same meditation. I'll start with my eyes open and then all of a sudden I'll realize that Somewhere in there, naturally, <laughs> my eyes just gently closed, and that's okay too. So, bias also comes in from cues. 
you know, I am not going to name any names. I'm just going to say these are some of the things that have come up uh, that I get curious about. And because especially because I think they're they're talking to me. So like, why is this wrong or bad or and it's neither of those. It's a bias that my assumption is came down from other teachers. Other teachers felt a way that you love this teacher. Why shouldn't that be the way it is? And one is, you know, there's certain English names that we put to asanas. And I'm not, I don't want to get too specific. I don't want, if you're listening, to think, oh my God, that was me. Because this is about a teaching moment, not about calling people out. But it was an English name that we use for one of the asanas that, you know, Yoga International uses, other people use. But this particular teacher, it has so, it, it expressed a peeve about it, such a pet peeve that I stopped saying it in my class, which took me out of alignment with my own language because I don't have that pet peeve, but now I feel like I do a little bit, but it's not really mine. I, I, I took on someone else's pet peeve. And so now I'm using it as much as I can because it's not the Sanskrit. It's not the language of yoga. It's a way we communicate these shapes. And if we can call something banana asana, then all, you know, and I know <laughs> we talked about last episode, but if we can call it banana asana, we can pretty much call the shapes what we want to if we're using English. Another one was um, that using the word invitation was somewhat narcissistic. If you say, I invite you to do something or I invite you to do this. I felt really bad because I use that sometimes. I don't think I'm a narcissist. I may have some narcissistic tendencies. We all have our ego shit, but maybe in that moment I experienced that. But the way I see it is that it's an invitation. And anyone can extend an invitation. You're not required to accept it. But the offering of an invitation should not, my feeling is, is not necessarily something. That was this person's particular pet peeve that I'm sure other people in the room who heard that are now adopting it. It's now their pet peeve. There was another pet peeve about certain breathing practices that we should or shouldn't do at different times. Different teachers have different reasons for it. Do your homework. Do your thing. But where I get triggered sometimes in a class where I realize I have to do more work is when I feel like, where I feel shame around something that I've done in a class that it doesn't need to be shameful. If I've said something that is not, not harmful to anyone, or I've done something where I, that if I feel that someone has said something to me in a language that inspires shame, I think, let me look a little bit deeper into that. Because I don't think that has anything to do with me. Unless it does, and then I learned that too. <laughs> so that was that. I just felt the need to say that. Just, uh, just, like, just get rid of your pet peeves and, and your shaving. Well, no, we, yeah. can, we can have our peeves, but as teachers, I think we, we have a bigger responsibility to how we... When I taught Finding Your Voice in teacher training, I would tell people, I'm going to just tell you right now, this is my pet peeve, and I don't want it to be yours. But I'll explain to you why it is, and then you can discern whether or not... Like, I had this whole thing about... Because as grammar, nodding your head and shaking your head... And I've, I've softened up around this too, that you nod your head yes, you shake your head no. You don't shake your head yes. And there's an argument to be had for shaking your head yes. So if you're not a grammar purist, then fuck that. You know, you say it however you want and I don't give a shit. And it shouldn't matter what I think about it anyway. So here we are, ready to tell you about camp. <laughs> so we have four Sundays coming up. In they begin on July 17th. It's 2.30 to 4.30. I don't think we made the official announcement on our last podcast that it will be held at Snipes Farm in Morrisville. So Pennsylvania. In, oh, yes, Morrisville, Pennsylvania. So if you're in driving distance or, you know, if you really wanted to fly in four times a week, with, I mean, four separate times, 
please, please go out and register. We will have, you know, you can check our Facebook page. You can check our website. There is right up on the navigation bar. We're supposed to find camp (laughs) on the navigation bar if you want to find out more. And we hope to see as many of you as possible in person because that's going to be a lot of fun. We Can we tell them any game that we're going to play? We can give them, not everything, but sure, let's tease. I like a good tease, don't you? Yeah, I love a good tease. (laughs) So we're going to have, in one of them, we're going to have a lot of fun. And one of the things that I really can't wait to do is hula hoops. I love hula hoops. And I'll tell you a really quick story. It's a quick story. I was on a, <laughs> we could do this all day. Yeah. I was on a cruise and I was in this hula hoop contest and it got to the end and it was just me and one other woman. And this woman was probably 30 years my senior, maybe 40 years my senior. And we're both there hula hooping and hula hooping. And she looks me right in the eye and she says, honey, I have been shaking my hips since before you were even a glimmer in your daddy's eye. And my little hoop dropped right to the ground. She, she sniped me. She sniped me right out. <laughs> They've been practicing. She had been practicing. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. And that will come no, as no surprise that it's on the final day, P for camp, for playful practices. And so it's going to be a day of play. Yay, play! So that's one of our little teasers. And we hope to see you at camp. Yes. All right. And... We love to finish, please. We'll, we'll conclude. We're going to work to, if we remember each time, that's always the thing, to conclude each time with our dedication of unity. And I say our, and it's not just mine and Teresa's, it's the collective dedication of unity. May, May we, we always see ourselves reflected in others. May we align with the rhythm of the natural world. May we feel the totality of the universe within us. May our interdependence offer us the liberty to live in compassion, generosity, and intelligence. Until next time. See you then. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our Grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you are so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. <laughs>